0: Two and a half admins, episode 44. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, do you want to plug your introduction to ZFS replication blog post, Alan?
1: Yeah. If you somehow are not already
0: familiar with ZFS replication and want to get started, check out this article on our website. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So something you wrote about, Jim, recently was chip shortages lead to more counterfeit chips and devices. This is surely the inevitable outcome of. This supply chain issue and the chip shortages that we've seen over the last year or so.
2: Come on, Joe, it's the inevitable outcome of a free market. Libertarians <laughs> rejoice. <laughs> now, now, not too much politics, Joe. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, so uh, you know, chip counterfeiting has been a thing for a very long time now, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. You'll come across chips that are. Technically legit, but they're being sold as new when actually, you know, it's a very old design that's still being sold as new. But somebody's just found a bin of these things in devices in a dumpster somewhere and has desoldered the chips and sanded down the surface and, uh, you know, rescreened them. And in some cases, like they call it black topping where you freshen up, you know, the the black surface on top of the chip before you rescreen the logo. And so people think that they're getting a brand new microcontroller to, you know, build into their device where they're actually just reusing something, like I said, maybe a decade old that was found in a dumpster and has been desoldered and been made to appear new again. Now, in addition to that, there's actual counterfeit chips that are nothing under the hood like the actual part you expect you're getting. There is a particularly famous example of that a microcontroller that, um, you know, it's an ASIC, it's it's custom silicon on a really old node process. And what the counterfeiters did is they dissected the drivers for this controller and they built an alternative version of it on, uh, you know, just an FPGA, a a field programmable gate array. And um, it worked with that particular version of the driver. But then when the original manufacturer of that model of microcontroller got wind of all these counterfeits out there in the wild, they made a new version that not only did the new version of the driver not work with the counterfeit controller, it actually bricked it. Wow, Which sucked because, you know, this is not just a case of like a hobbyist who's building a thing and, you know, knowingly went out and bought a counterfeit part and gets what he gets. Uh, These things ended up in a lot of retail sold devices that went to consumers who have nothing to do with purchasing or selecting a microcontroller. You know, they're buying a widget that does an end user thing. And now all of a sudden that widget is permanently broken because this microcontroller manufacturer got pissy about the counterfeits out there and wrote the driver to deliberately brick those counterfeit controllers. So they not only bricked the controllers, they bricked entire consumer devices that were not in any sense theirs to brick. And the costs are very real. I mean, even in the theoretically less extreme version where it is the legitimate controller or, you know, other part that you're that, that a company was trying to buy to integrate into their products and you know they end up with something you know out of a recycled bin instead of new parts, it'll work with all the same drivers. It's technically the same thing, but you know, the cost to that company potentially in terms of return rates can be immense because these things may pass initial QA at the factory with flying colors, but that doesn't mean they're gonna be in the same condition after an additional six months or a year of use that a brand new part would have been.
1: Yeah. You know, when you're getting a used part you have no idea, you know what kind of thermals it was been subjected to in the past and and why it was discarded in the first place? Was it because it was malfunctioning?
2: The thing that we've avoided talking about so far is why this is particularly a problem in the pandemic. And I think the important thing to note here is we've been talking about all these examples that go back years of chip counterfeiting, which demonstrates that there's already enough of a demand for cheaper Parts, you know, to to get these counterfeiters to go through these efforts to make a quick buck, that demand was already there even when everybody's supply chains were fully functional, and it was just literally a question of saving a few bucks by getting the cheaper part. Now that we're in the pandemic and the supply chains are pretty much wrecked in any number of industries. Now it's not just a question of, oh, you know, this vendor is offering me this microcontroller for 50 cents where the other one was offering it for 60. Now it's a question of, you know, my entire production line that is employing, you know, 50 to 100 people may just go dead for the next month if I can't get 10,000 of these things tomorrow. So the impetus is there not only to potentially buy these counterfeit parts, but also there's a lot of additional pressure there. To say, you know, okay, even if you've got procedures which you've used to try to avoid counterfeit parts in the past, maybe you ought to relax those right now because, hey, buddy, I got 10,000 of these things right here for you, but uh, got a lot of people that want them. If you don't buy them today, they're going to be gone tomorrow. And so, you know, now you're you're the person who's in charge of keeping that line in production, what do you do? Do you let it go by or do you just, you know, wince and say, ah, and and just buy this thing from this vendor you're not familiar with and you don't really know how good they are or earned? Yeah,
1: it was the pandemic caused all kinds of complications in the supply chain, whether it was just it turns out all the empty containers are stuck on one side of the ocean and they need to be on the other side <laughs> or it is the manufacturing on the other side shut down because everybody had COVID through all the different variations of that or, you know, all the production in this shifted to make masks or something or hand sanitizer and so on. Just so many second and third order effects of any one thing in supply chain changing.
2: I'm not really sure that too many microcontroller production lines shifted over to making K95 masks. (laughs) but
0: (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of them did shut down. We talked about this a while ago. And it looks like these supply chain problems are here to stay for potentially another year or two.
2: I think easily. The issue at this point is not just a, an interruption in the supply chain, even when the supply chain itself is back and theoretically functional, producing as much as it used to. It's got a year's worth of hold a backfill before everything can be back to normal.
1: Yeah, so much stuff is running on just-in-time inventory and so on that they really depend on no interruptions happening and they have... Not much ability to, to deal with that. And like we're saying, there's bottlenecks at all the major ports is, you know, like especially coming into the US where ships are sitting around outside the port for weeks or months waiting for a slot to get in and then unload their stuff and go. And then we're also having this other problem where all the empty containers are ending up stuck in America because countries back in Asia aren't buying the things from America to ship containers back in uh, or full of. And so you end up with all the containers stuck on one side. And it's like, well, we're not going to take the empty ones back for no reason, but we're going to run out of shipping containers. Or there's even problems with warehouse space and so on to the point there. Farmers are getting called up by logistics companies saying, hey, how much would you normally make off that field? Uh, We'll pay you twice that to let us just fill it with containers for the summer because we need the extra space. Wow.
2: Well, and let's not forget also that these companies uh, that had been buying parts just in time that have been starving for parts for months are now heavily incentivized to hoard. Once those parts become available, they no longer want just enough to get through next week. They're like, ah, we have to build up a bigger inventory of this stuff than we had before. It's the same thing that we saw with toilet paper. Think about how long it was after everybody was making toilet paper again before you could keep a roll of it on the freaking shelf at the local supermarket. You couldn't because everybody wasn't just buying toilet paper for right now. They were doing what me and my family always did and buying like the entire next year in one trip. (laughs) (laughs)
1: My local grocery store kind of purposely overreacted. And so like when you went to the freezer aisle, the entire top of the entire freezer section was just boxes of rolls of toilet paper. They were just showing off with how much excess toilet paper they had. And like any blank spot on any shelf for the whole like 20 aisles was just crammed with extra rolls of toilet paper.
2: I kind of enjoyed the local Lowe's head toilet paper months before the, the grocery stores did. I'm not sure they ever had an interruption at all. Like once the scarcity hit, they had the worst toilet paper imaginable. You know, we, we call that stuff John Wayne toilet paper. It's rough, it's tough, and it doesn't take no beep off of anybody. They had it in just a giant bin at the front of the store with a big, very rudely phrased sign letting you know you get two rolls that's all you get. (laughs) So, you know, people would come in and they would buy just enough toilet paper to get through a couple of days or a week and then come back to get more. Whereas in the grocery stores, as soon as they had it, you know, whoever first happens on the stock toilet paper aisle is just like, ah, it's mine.
0: Which is exactly what's happened with this chip shortage thing. The likes of Apple have booked all of the time on the fabs and everyone else is just out of luck. I mean, I'm always on board for slagging Apple. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what's happened with the auto industry, right? With cars and stuff. That's why they didn't get their act together in time and place the orders. And other companies, not just Apple, but companies like Apple swooped in. And now we've got this serious problem where they can't make new cars, seemingly, because they don't have the chips to do it.
2: Reportedly, in a lot of cases, they're making the cars, but they don't have enough of various types of controllers to get the car production ready. So they build the car on the line, they put all the chips in temporarily, drive the car off to a holding lot, and then pull all the scarce chips to go do the same thing to get the next batch of cars from the factory out to the storage lot. You would think that they would just be using those really big transport carriers to load the cars, but apparently not. I've gotten that from a lot of sources that I trust pretty well lately. That's going on in a lot of American auto manufacturers.
0: And so you have to wonder to what extent these counterfeit chips are going to make their way into supply chains as things get more and more desperate.
2: You phrase that as though it's a thing that might happen, whereas the reality is, you know, it's not a binary. It either is or it isn't. It's a slider. And that slider has already shifted pretty strongly to the right, and it may continue going that way. We're liable to peg it at some point.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free 7-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com/25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins let's do some free consulting then but just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with paypal and patreon first it really does mean a lot to us and if you want to join those people you can go to two dot five admins dot com slash support and remember for five dollars a month or more on patreon you can get an advert free rss feed and if you want to send in your questions or feedback show at two dot five admins dot com is the way to do it And another perk of supporting us on Patreon is you get to jump the queue. If you have a question, which is exactly what Christopher has done, he says, I've wanted to use ZFS on one of my VPSs to back up with ZFS Send, but the issue that always prevents me from running ZFS is low-ish memory situations. I hear time and again on Stack Overflow and Reddit that if I run ZFS with less than 4 gigabytes of RAM, I'll randomly lose data and there's nothing I can do about it. I have trouble believing that, as that would be a huge oversight in the design of the file system. Is it never suitable for a 2 gigabyte VPS? Is there no set of tunables that make ZFS operate safely with a gigabyte of memory, and performance be damned? It seems like I ought to be able to suffocate the arc of memory, disable compression and encryption, and then I wouldn't be much worse off than most other file systems. Or does the copy on write or other fundamental tech it's using really require more than four gigabytes of memory to even operate safely. Is there some low memory condition that could lead to pool or data loss? At what amount of memory does that risk become less than or equal to a conventional file system? Google seems remarkably unhelpful here.
2: There is no risk of data loss because you don't have enough RAM in your machine. That's an urban legend. Yeah. Like your
1: hard drive is not going to randomly forget things because you ran out of memory.
2: Right. Now you can absolutely encounter performance problems on machines, you know, with less than four gigs of total RAM. That doesn't mean four gigs for ZFS. It just means four gigs in the box, which by default is going to mean two gigs available for the ARC on ZFS and the other two gigs available for the uh, system. You can have performance issues, but it does not result in data loss. Matter of fact, for the first several years that I used ZFS, I had it on several tens of machines, all of which only had two gigs of RAM and they were all fine. They even performed pretty well. The worst issue that I ran into with those low memory machines was every once in a while, like the pool would lock up and the machine would need to get rebooted. And I'm not entirely certain if that even had anything to do with the RAM. It did not seem to occur on the same machines once they were upgraded to 4GIG, and I suspect it boiled down to a less than completely tuned swap and going into a death spiral, but um, I, I've never lost data due to not having enough RAM <laughs> in a machine. That's, that's not a thing. It gets repeated a lot. That doesn't make it true.
1: Yeah, like... All of my VPSs with one or two gigs of RAM happen to use ZFS and they work just fine. The default tuning won't be bad. You can choose to make the ARC even smaller. I think the minimum is 64 megabytes. Uh, And that's just ZFS needs enough room in the ARC to take the incoming writes uh, and coalesce them and write them out. But that's not that much to ask. And there's no reason to disable the compression. It doesn't really use any more memory. And it will, in fact, save you more because the ARC caches the compressed version. It will let you actually get back a little bit of the performance you lose from not having very much memory by keeping the metadata and so on in the compressed form in memory. So don't turn compression off. Encryption, uh, you might want to turn off because that is going to eat up CPU. And if you're in a cheap VPS, that's not something you're worried about. And, you know, if it's a VPS, you probably want it to be able to boot up without you having to enter keys and so on anyway. But that's... Orthogonal, really. So yes, it's totally fine to do it in a small one. The other thing is, you know, obviously you're not going to have a hundred terabytes of storage attached to your your cheap uh, one or two gig of RAM VPS. But in the end, for ZFS, it, how much storage you have doesn't make that big of a difference. ZFS manages what it does in the amount of memory you have. So just don't try to give ZFS too much of the memory, and it shouldn't cause any problems. Uh, otherwise, you know, your biggest problem is just going to be the ZFS and the rest of the operating system fighting over the amount of RAM, but like you said, you can easily set the tunable in whether it's ZFS or Linux or whatever, or sorry, FreeBSD or Linux or whichever, uh, to set the Arc Max at something like two hundred and fifty six megabytes or five hundred and twelve megabytes
0: out of your two gigs and it should just work fine. It has for me for a decade. Okay, Andrew writes, I was wondering what you think about golden images, that is pre-baked VM images where you've taken a stock ISO, added some additional configuration and then baked a custom image. When my life was simple and environments were homogenous, i.e. a single cloud provider or single VM technology, I found them quite useful. As my career progressed, I found myself supporting VDIs, physical servers, user workstations, multiple cloud providers and different OSs all at once. At that point, the cost of maintaining golden images seemed too high. Better, I thought, to take the latest image the vendor offers and invest in a good configuration management technology. However, then you run into a problem of config management technology that works across all the platforms you want. I found myself sticking lately to mostly Ansible and for any Windows boxes that don't run Intune, Windows Server, using PowerShell DSC. But now I have three config management tools. Should I just go back to golden images?
2: I mean, I don't know about going back necessarily. I don't really see it as a binary either or. I am a big believer in gold images. Generally, at any of my clients that are large enough that there's going to be some amount of churn in their VMs, I will absolutely keep a gold image around, especially of Windows Server. Matter of fact, I just needed to recreate a Windows Server 2019 gold image for a client the other day. You go ahead and get it set up, Get all your driver configuration done. Uh, any applications that will universally need to be on all boxes, uh, get get all that crap done ahead of time, and uh, then run sysprep, generalize, and uh, save that off as a gold image. And that way, the next time that client wants a Windows server, you can literally just do a quick, you know, CP sparse equals always, and in seconds you're ready to, you know, here, here's your, here's your new Windows VM. Yeah, I
1: do something similar with uh, ZFS ZVols and being able to clone them, right? So I have the the golden images, one ZVol, and I can easily clone it to spin up extra VMs.
2: I'm going to interrupt you there, though, Alan, uh, to share a lesson that I learned the hard way. If you are a reasonably bright individual and the only one working on your network... Just using replication to clone zvols or even data sets with a gold image is fine. However, be careful about that if you've got junior admins, because if for some reason they decide to replicate the gold image over the production again, it will work because they share a common snapshot. And when they do that, it will not only destroy your production image there, that will in turn also get replicated out to any hot spares or backups you have around. So be very, very careful about maintaining common snapshots between gold images and production images. There is a reason I do CP sparse equals always now. (laughs) Uh, Also, ZFS receive,
1: you probably don't actually want to be using the capital F flag in your automation. It can lead to very much pain. (laughs) Because, yeah, it'll be like, hey, that already exists. And uh, capital F means, all right, well, fuck it and overwrite it.
2: (laughs) Well, what did you think the F stood for? (laughs)
1: Exactly. It's a capital F, too. So it means really fuck it over. (laughs) Because uh, I mostly deal with FreeBSD, I'm using the Poudreur tool, which uh, originally was just for package building, but it also has Poudreur image for making golden images. And so I have basically CI, CD style automation for making my golden images. So I can say, all right, I want to start from FreeBSD 13.0 and I want to add in these changes over top of it. And I want to auto install this list of packages and then spit me out a golden image. And so... It's very easy to, to increment those. You know, if I just upgrade to, you know, FreeBSD 13 P4, I can just trigger that script again and it'll do the overlay, grab newer versions of those packages and build me the output. And for the output, I can choose. Do I want an AWS image? Do I want a VMware image? Do I want a Beehive image? Do I want a USB stick or a CD ROM image or whatever different output type I need? And I can even say also make me a Raspberry Pi image or do cross building and, you know, give me ARM64 images for other servers and it makes it really nice if you can basically automate the process of generating the golden images so that you can more easily and even automatically increment those golden images
2: this is like alan's version of kde corner <laughs> <laughs>
1: um like i imagine you could do something similar with windows you like run windows update and then re prep the golden image
2: oh yeah absolutely that that's a thing that i do If a client's got a golden image, but it's been around for a while, like eventually you just notice that the first Windows Update is taking too long and being too annoying. And that becomes worth wrapping a new VM definition around your gold image for long enough to boot it up, run Windows Update, regeneralize, and shut it down again. Um, You do have a limited number of uh, sysprep generalize on a given image that, I mean, you should not actually hit this. But you only have a 1,001 of them in total. If you manage to generalize the same VM more than a 1,000 times, you're going to have to chuck it and create a new one from scratch again.
1: Just start with an older snapshot.
0: <laughs> or that. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support, offered 24 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare-metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Okay, MXU says, I'm starting to re-outfit my home computers and network and was thinking of focusing on my router first. Over the years, I've almost always gotten the top or at least second best consumer level wireless routers. But this time around, I was thinking of either getting a pre-owned small business router or dedicating a Linux PC to be a homebrew router and adding wireless access points. I seem to recall that Jim published work around homebrew routers years ago. So I wondered if in this day and age, these homebrew routers are still worth considering. For context, I'm quite comfortable managing small-scale Linux servers, and my goal with this is better performance, less so privacy, etc. So should I consider a homebrew Linux PC router or pre-owned small business router, or should I just shut up and buy a NetGate SG1100 with PFSense and focus on other stuff?
2: Homebrew routers are certainly still worth considering. I still manage my own home network and uh, quite a few businesses with one you know, built on just you know, bare vanilla Ubuntu and IP tables and the relevant packages. And there's not a whole lot that's changed since I wrote those articles, I think, five, maybe six years ago now. With that said, given what MXU is asking and what they say their goals are, I would certainly recommend what amounts to a Linux PC rather than a pre-built router regardless. The question becomes, do you want to actually just run a bare Linux or BSD on it like Alan or I do? Or if you want to still get the same generic hardware, but instead install OpenSense on it. I have to say, I don't recommend PFSense if you're starting this out, you know, as a blue sky project. I do not like some of the shenanigans that uh, the company behind PFSense has gotten up to over the years. And OpenSense is a really great alternative that's forked from the same base, but the interface I find considerably more logically laid out and usable. And the company has never accused anybody else of being Hitler. So that's a point in their favor. I,
1: like Jim, just used bare operating systems. So mine's vanilla FreeBSD, doesn't actually even have any packages because it's literally just IPFW and NAT. And so it's a couple of lines in a text file and I had a router.
2: The packages on mine are ISC DHCP server and BIND nine. To be clear,
1: yes, my package is I use the ISC DHCP server, which is a separate package.
2: Exposed. Yep. <laughs> one of one of my favorite uh, spam telemarketing calls was this dude that called up one of my clients and uh, was just absolutely getting nowhere trying to cold call this particular engineer, and eventually just said, "Hey, you strike me as the kind of guy that uses software, am I right?" <laughs> Anyway, so the
0: original question wasn't what you are using, it's what MXU should be using.
1: It depends how comfortable they are with stuff, but I would second what Jim said and generic hardware and then put an operating system on it, whether you want to go with out of the box Ubuntu or FreeBSD, or if you want to grab something like OpenSense or PFSense or whatever, you're just going to have a lot more flexibility and not run into performance limitations because especially a previously owned commercial level router is really not that much better than the consumer level ones. And almost all of them are like, oh, what can we cram into like 256 megabytes of memory and and a 16 megabyte flash storage? Your general PC is just always going to have more flexibility, more options. They didn't mention how much network they have to deal with, you know, if they're under 100 megabits, it probably doesn't make a difference.
2: It absolutely does still make a difference. It's not going to make a difference on a speed test. It will absolutely make a difference when you're, you know, when you've got a more demanding, realistic workload. Like, for example, browsing web pages where you might need to make literally 150 separate connections just to render a single page. Yeah, you will absolutely see a difference in that. You know, going from a uh, commercial router to something that's built on x86, even if it's just like a wimpy eight-year-old Celeron, it's going to have way more grunt for that than uh, you know, even the higher end. It's going to have at least a gig of RAM, and then that's
1: automatically going to be four times what any embedded type router is going to have, whether
0: it's consumer-grade or commercial-grade. It's not just the RAM, though. Well, that was my next question. What sort of minimum specs should you be looking at for an X86 box?
1: It kind of depends on your internet connection and how many devices are going to be behind it. Like This is just for your house, so... Almost anything will do. You just want something that's not going to (laughs) break. So don't go too old.
2: A gig of RAM and an x86 processor that you can find that still works is pretty much going to do the trick. If you're really worried about somebody digging out, you know, a 1990s era Pentium 3, then just specify a 64-bit x86 processor and you're going to be good to go. That will rule out your incredibly wimpy Atom lines as well. And so what you're left with is, yep, this will be fine. And uh, if you're like, oh, well, I actually only have 512 megs of RAM, not a gig. Yeah, it's fine, too. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Mine is a
1: low power Xeon E3. So it's like only two real cores, I think. And it's got four gigabit ports doing different things and is routing really large amounts of traffic and has never even broken a sweat. Presumably you need
0: at least two NICs then.
2: Yes. But
1: you can get
0: like an Intel PCIe gigabit NIC for $12. So So as long as you've got a relatively modern, as in in the last 10 years motherboard, you should be good. Basically, if it's 64-bit, it should be good.
1: I would say NICs get Intel if you're doing gigabit or whatever, like none of that real tech shit.
2: I could just as easily say none of that free BSD shit where they don't have decent real tech drivers, but (laughs) sure. The real tech problem is in the hardware, not the driver. (laughs) It's a little bit of both. It's also pretty badly overstated. Um, If you have the option, it's never a bad idea to go with the Intel NIC. Um, if you don't have the option or it would be a big pain in the ass, um, when I did that very first homebrew router article, that was with Realtek NICs. And that ancient, even at the time, quad-core Celeron with a couple of gigs of RAM – and Realtek Nix was a gigabit condom. Uh, you couldn't really tell the difference between direct routing with no machine at all, just a switch port in the way, or that machine doing full routing through it, which is what leads me to say eh, that the whole Realtek thing is just way overstated.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the Realtek hardware that was a problem is at least 15 years
0: old now. More like 20. Probably, yes. <laughs> it, honestly, it was mostly 100 megabit, not gigabit anyway. Yep. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington.
2: I'm at JRSSnet.
0: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.